for most of us, the Psalms are not a book that we're super familiar with. We may be familiar with certain Psalms. It's very easy to get them confused. And unlike books that have a narrative structure or a plot line or a systematic argument like some of the epistles, the Psalms just sometimes seem kind of thrown together. But even a cursory reading of the New Testament will show that for the authors of the New Testament and for Jesus himself, the Psalms formed the lexicon, the dictionary of how they express their emotions. A lot of times the Psalms are quoted not exegetically. In other words, the New Testament authors aren't saying this is what this Psalm was originally about and prophesying and now it's come true, although sometimes they do that. But a lot of times, the Psalms provided Israel the vocabulary to express how they were feeling. The Psalms provided Jesus the vocabulary to express how he was feeling. The Psalms provided a comprehensive worldview, an overall way of seeing the world that all of the New Testament authors were steeped in. The problem is for us modern readers, especially modern evangelical Bible readers, the Psalms may or may not hold a cherished place. Now, part of it is just a matter of linguistics. Psalms are songs, and any good song is based on having lyrics that are easily memorable, that are catchy, that are a play on words. Think about your favorite song. Think about your favorite pop song. Think about some of the greatest top 40 hits of all time. You can remember song lyrics because song lyrics are memorable. They're written to be memorable. They're written either to rhyme, to have assonance, to have meter. They're written to get into your head. There's a whole term for it. It's called an earworm. You know, a song, maybe you hate the song, but as soon as you hear it, you cannot get it out of your head for weeks at a time sometimes. It's because music and songs and lyrics have a way to communicate that prose, narrative, epistles just don't have. The Psalms were Israel's worship book. The Psalms were Israel's hymns that they sang when they gathered. I mean, if an ancient Israelite had an iPhone, the Psalms would be their playlist. But for us, for a number of reasons, that's just not the case. First is translation. Depending on which translation you read, some Psalms may be handled very differently. This is true of all of Scripture, but particularly the poetic, the lyrical parts of Scripture. And also the numbering. We refer to Psalms by their numbers rather than by the first word or the title of the Psalm. So they're harder to remember. You may not know what is Psalm 19 versus Psalm 17. Psalm 132, Psalm 68. I mean, these are just random numbers that you can't really anchor yourself to. So what I thought it would be cool to do here at Disciple Dojo is to build an ongoing playlist here on the channel where people can subscribe and follow along as we read through the Psalms one at a time. And because it's Disciple Dojo and we like to dig a little deeper, we can read through the song and then we can actually look at the text. We can compare some translations and I'll just point out some things that I think are interesting or memorable and that's it. This is not going to be a deep dive on the Psalms. We're not going to look at a biblical theology of the Psalms. We're not going to talk a lot about the overall macro structure, like how the book is put together. We may not talk about every New Testament use of a Psalm. Instead, what I want to do, and this is as much for my benefit as for viewers, I want to do this because I want to be more familiar with the songs that gave Israel their vocabulary for how they talk to God. So, I don't know if we'll get through all 150 Psalms, 
We'll see how it goes, but I thought it would be cool to just take a leisurely scroll through the Psalms one at a time. This playlist may take me one, two, even three years to get through. I don't know, but I think it is part of any training in biblical discipleship. So let's start off by looking at Psalm 1. I'm going to read it in the NIV, the 1984 NIV. This is just because if you've seen our Bible review videos, this is my teaching study Bible that I use. For those who are wondering, this is the now out of print archaeological study Bible by Zondervan. Again, I'm on a one-man campaign through the Disciple Dojo viewer army to get into Zondervan's ear and tell them to put this Bible back in print because it's just that good. And honestly, one of the reasons I really like it is because there's so much space at single column. So I can actually take notes and make observations and write in these wide margins for each Psalm. So I would recommend if you're going to read through the Psalms in an actual print Bible, get one that's single columned where you can pretty much see the Psalm broken up in its lines without being divided and split in the middle of the page and just you're looking at a wall of text. I think it just makes it easier to see the song. You know how they used to print song lyrics in CD inserts or for those of you that are my age, cassette inserts. But however you can look at the Psalms as songs rather than as just printed words on a page, I think that would be helpful. So let's just look at Psalm 1. Here it is. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's Psalm 1. So let's look at it in not only the original Hebrew, but also the Septuagint and how some of the various translations have handled it over the centuries. And let's just note some things that are interesting and memorable about Psalm 1. So here is the Hebrew of Psalm 1. This is using Lagos. Below it is the Greek of the Septuagint. And I'll have these up because sometimes the Psalms in Hebrew are numbered differently than the Psalms in the Septuagint. The Septuagint translators sometimes would group Psalms together that the Hebrew has separately. And sometimes the Hebrew verse numbers count the superscript of the Psalm, like what we would call the title of the Psalm. And then over here, I've put different translations so we can compare them. This is the LEB. This is the Lexham English Bible. This is sort of the in-house Logos Bible software translation. It's a very woodenly literal translation. It's really helpful for me because I can usually tell the underlying structure or have a good idea of what the original language said based on how literally they render it. And then next to it, we have the King James. And then after that, we have the old JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, back in 1917, and then the updated JPS, Tanakh translation. And then over in this far right column, I have the Lexham English Septuagint. So this is basically a translation of the Greek text. Then along the bottom, I have modern Christian translation. So we've got the RSV, which was sort of the heir to the KJV. The NRSV, which was an update of the RSV, I don't have the NRSV UE in my Logos account. I have it in accordance, but I don't have it for Logos. But there is an updated NRSV that just came out last year. 
Beside it, then the ESV, this is sort of the evangelical version of what the NRSV and the RSV tried to be. And then I have the two versions of the most popular Baptist-owned translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which came out in, the, I think, the early 2000s, maybe around 2004, 2005. And then it's since then been updated to the CSB, just the Christian Standard Bible, with some slight changes. So I have these so we can compare those if it matters. And then just for fun, I've got the message over here in this far column. And the message is not meant to be a translation. Eugene Peterson was very skilled in both Hebrew and Greek. He's an apt translator, but he wasn't trying to translate the Bible. What he was trying to do was make a intentionally modern colloquial paraphrase of scripture. And so if you use the message that way, which is how Eugene Peterson intended people to use it, then I think it's fun to see sometimes how he wanted to communicate the nuance of what the verse is saying. So there are many, many, many more translations out there. These are just the ones that I think would be helpful to compare as we go through the Psalms. So this this is my Psalm read-through workspace on my Logos Bible software. So with all that being said, you know, this first video is just kind of some housekeeping, but let's look at this Psalm 1 and point out some things interesting. To me now, the first thing of interest is the very first part of the first verse. Asherei ha'ish asher lo halak ba'atzah. That's a little more... I guess it flows a little better in Hebrew. Of course, my South Georgia Hebrew accent is probably not doing it justice. So apologies to native Hebrew speakers. But the thing that's so interesting to me is this first phrase, Asharei Ha'ish. Asharei, and you can see at the bottom down on the screen. So if you look down here, when I hover over this word, the information will pop up. And this is Lagos just kind of telling you how to parse certain words. But Asherah, this is a noun. This is a common masculine plural noun, and it's in the construct state. So it's really, literally, this is happiness of or blessedness of the man. That's literally how it would be rendered. Now, in English, that doesn't work. We need a verb. But Hebrew poetry, you don't have to have verbs sometimes. It's poetry. The rules of grammar don't apply. And that's one of the hard things about translating poetry into English. We want grammar to match what we know of as good English grammar. And sometimes it just can't. So when I read this, I read this word ashare. It can mean happy. It can mean blessed. But in English, both of those words may not convey the sense of what the Hebrew word actually conveys. Happy may seem like cheerful, happy, always have a smile on my face. And blessed, I mean, that just gets done to death in our culture. Hashtag blessed. You know, like, I got a good parking space at work today. Hashtag blessed. Stay blessed, my friend. You know, it just, these words lose their impact over time because of how watered down they are. But I think it's important to note, this is the way you introduce a formal blessing, like a formal pronouncing of what is good and pleasing. So down here in the Septuagint, they render it, they translate it with makarios aner. And in Greek, this is an adjective. So the Hebrew is a noun in the construct state, which so it's functioning kind of like an adjective, but the Greek is actually an adjective, blessed. And it means blessed or happy or however we want to render that in English. So the psalm is opening up Israel's hymn book with a presentation of basically 
two states that humanity can be in. They can either be in a state of blessedness, or they can be in a contrasting state, which is what the second part of the psalm gets into. And I, this makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with, and in Greek in the New Testament, he uses this word, makarios, happy are, blessed are, when he starts the Beatitudes, the things that begin what then get unpacked in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel with the same word that begins Israel's hymn book. That would fit very well with what Matthew does throughout his gospel, showing that Jesus is sort of refocusing the identity of Israel and all of scripture around himself. But blessed or happy, fortunate, in good standing with God is the person who not he walks in the advice or in the counsel of wicked ones. And then to parallel that, because the way Hebrew poetry works is it says something one way, and then frequently it'll say it a different way in the next line. So this in the counsel of wicked ones is parallel to the next line. And, or you could translate it as, or in the path, Derek, which means way, road, path of sinners, he does not stand. And then it says it a third time. So this will be a tripartite structure. And in the seat of Leitzim, a scoffer or an arrogant person or a fool, he does not sit. So this is saying, what, it, what does it mean to be blessed? It means you don't walk, you don't stand, you don't sit in the way of the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. And so LEB, I'll just give you a pretty literal translation. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the assembly of mockers. So they're taking the seat of as an expression denoting the assembly of, like a bunch of people seated around. So that's one way of translating. The new JPS, you could translate it, happy is the man who has not followed the counsel of the wicked or taken the path of sinners or joined the company of the insolent. And then in his just sometimes delightfully ridiculous way of paraphrasing it, the message, Eugene Peterson translated it as, how well God must like you. You don't hang out in sin saloon. You don't slink along dead end road. You don't go to smart mouth college. I mean, I like Eugene Peterson just fine. I think this is kind of a borderline ridiculous way of translating Psalm 1-1. But again, he's not trying to produce an accurate biblical translation. He's trying to convey poetically the sense that it conveys. And so I could see how he gets there, even though it's, it's a little bit silly. But the psalm goes on to contrast that. No, instead, key M, instead, it's a conjunction, you know, can be translated as instead, but, or rather, in the Torah Adonai, and this is God's name, we might say Yahweh, but observant Jews haven't pronounced it since before the time of Jesus, but Torah Adonai, in the Torah of the Lord, Chefso, his delight. So there might need to be a verb here, in the Torah of Yahweh, or in the Torah of the Lord, is his delight, or he delights. And in his Torah, in the Torah of the Lord, he meditates daily, yomam, that's an adverb, by day or daily, and night. So he doesn't, the person who's blessed is the person who doesn't stand, walk, sit with the wicked, as the wicked, among the wicked, but instead he delights in Torah. 
in God's law, in the story of what God has done for his people. That's what he meditates on daily and nightly. And so because of that, then the psalm is going to go on to talk about him being, and it'll use an agricultural imagery, he's going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. You know, if you plant a tree out in the middle of the desert, probably not going to yield a lot of fruit. If you plant a tree near streams of water, which in a dry land like ancient Near East Israel, there are not a lot of streams of water. And so trees planted by them, that's the sweet spot. It's constantly being refreshed. And that's what the psalmist is kind of alluding to, I think, at least in this imagery, is like by meditating, by immersing yourself in God's word for the time of the psalmist, it was Torah. Immersing yourself in scripture, you are like a tree constantly being watered by streams and therefore yielding fruit in season. So it's an image of a lush tree. It yields fruit. It's healthy. Its leaves do not wither. And so taking it out of the realm of metaphor and back into the realm of person, then the end of the verse, and therefore all that he does, all that the person who makes the study of scripture and Torah, his delight day and night, as opposed to walking in the way of sinners, sitting at the seat of scoffers, standing in the council of the wicked, all of those things, unlike them, all that he does prospers. Now, this is where we'll probably say this many times throughout the Psalms. It's important to realize these are songs. This is not axiomatic truth claims. This is not a formula. These are songs. This is expressive imagery. So it doesn't mean that if something in your life is not prospering, that that means you are walking in the way of the wicked or the vice of sinners or seat of scoffers or any of that stuff, and you're not planted in God's word. No, because scripture is going to be filled with examples of people who did delight in God's word, who were with him day and night in their love of and devotion to scripture, but yet who still suffered. And sometimes they suffered because of their delight in God's law. Think about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Think about Jesus in the garden. Think about Elijah despairing of his life. But that's not what songs are written to teach. Songs aren't written to teach absolute universal truths that hold true in every situation. They're meant to express big ideas, concepts, give a foundation. And the foundation that the book of Psalms begins with is that when all is said and done, there are going to be two paths you can go. You can go the path of the wicked, or you can go the path of the godly. And one's going to lead to death. One ultimately is going to lead to life. That's what the song is conveying. And you see this in the next lines. So the contrast in verse 4, Lochein harshaim, not so the wicked. In other words, the wicked are not going to be like lush trees with healthy leaves, bearing fruit every season, doing the thing that they were put there to do, literally bringing life to people. The wicked aren't going to be like that. The wicked instead, a different agricultural metaphor is used. The wicked are like chaff, which the wind scatters. If you know anything about agriculture in the ancient world, and the New Testament writers take this for granted because there's numerous examples of this exact image used as images of judgment. When you harvested, let's say wheat or barley, the way wheat and barley grow is, you know, there are kernels of wheat or barley, but that's wrapped in a husk. Particularly with wheat, you've got this inedible husk and the good wheat kernel is inside the husk, but these are tiny. You can't separate them by hand. So how did ancient Near East farmers separate the wheat from the husk that's surrounding it? Well, 
they would throw it onto a threshing floor and they would have an animal walk around it over and over and over. And the animal walking, crunching, crushing would basically break up the wheat and the husk and separate them from each other. And then eventually you lead the animal away, you go back in and what you're left with is a mixed pile. Wheat and dry inedible husk all mixed together and you've got to separate that out. So how did they separate it? Well, they would take a big pitchfork and they would jab it into the pile of this half good wheat, half inedible husks, toss it up into the air and the husk that surrounds the wheat was very like tissue, it was very dry, it was very light, but the wheat kernel was fairly heavy. So when you throw them both up into the air, imagine wrapping a piece of tissue around a, a billiard ball and you throw it up in the air. Well, the billiard ball is going to come straight down because it's heavy, but the tissue is going to get blown around. So if a wind is blowing and you throw them both up into the wind, then the wind will automatically take the chaff away. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for wind is ruach, spirit. And so it's the wind slash spirit, the ruach, that does the separating of the wheat and the chaff. And the wicked are the chaff. The wicked will get blown away. The wicked will get separated. And the wheat will be, wait for it, left behind. The wheat is what remains after the chaff has been blown away. And this is an image of judgment that Jesus is going to use throughout his ministry. The wicked are going to be removed. The wicked are going to be, as he says in the famous left behind passage, taken away, just like the flood took evildoers away in Noah's time. The wicked are going to be like the good fish and the bad fish. The bad fish are thrown out. And what remains? The good fish. The wicked are going to be like, in Jesus' parable, the wheat and the weeds. The wheat is gathered, the weeds are separated and thrown away. These are all parallel images connoting the same thing, that when it comes to the final, ultimate, all is said and done judgment, God knows who the wicked and who the righteous are, and he will be able to judge. And the fate of the wicked is to be removed at the day of judgment, taken away, cast out into the outer darkness, into the lake of fire, into the, all the images that scripture uses. And, and, and we don't know how far, I don't know at least how far to press those images and try to parse out the geography of heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. I think once you start to do that, you're already getting away from what the text, which is a song, is intending to communicate. But ultimately, it is what verse 5 says. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, when God's judgment comes, the wicked won't be able to stand. They won't remain. They'll be taken away. And in parallel, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So what's going to be removed when all is said and done is everything that is not in the congregation of the righteous, everything that's antithetical to the Lord. Those who have chosen not to walk in the way of the Lord, but to walk in the way of anything else in creation. Because ultimately, ki yodea Adonai, for knowing, he is knowing, this is a participle, he is knowing the Lord, the way of the righteous ones, but the way of the wicked ones, toved, is from the verb abad, which means to destroy or to perish. 
the way of the wicked is destruction. And so this knowing, you know, this is translated different ways. Some translations just kind of take it literally like King James, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. But the JPS, the New Tanakh, for the Lord cherishes the way of the righteous. Or the Christian standard, Holman Christian standard, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And those are all valid ways to translate Yodea. And Eugene Peterson, God charts the road you take. The road they take is skid row. Again, kind of silly, but it gets the point across, which is Psalm 1 is presenting at the beginning of Israel's worship hymn book. It's giving the worshiper two paths that they can go. And so that's how Israel's songbook starts. There's two paths that we can go. We can go the path of being in relationship with God, which is Asherah, blessed, happy, prosperous, however you want to translate it. Or we can go the path of the wicked, the mockers, the fools, the arrogant, the evildoers. And that way is destruction. So hopefully this helps give a little bit more insight into this first song in Israel's hymn book. If my Hebrew was good enough, I might try to read it in Hebrew out loud, but I'm better at deciphering Hebrew than actually speaking it by a long shot. So for that, pull up the Bart Bible app that we've looked at here on the channel and you can hear it read in Hebrew. So Psalm 1, are we going to be trees that are planted and nourished by God's word, by Torah, and ultimately by, for Christians, God's word made flesh? Or are we going to follow the way of the world? And ultimately, when it's harvest time, will we be blown away like the chaff that's worthless? How you answer that will be up to you and how much stock you put in this 3,000-year-old song. But at least you hopefully have a better idea of what it's actually saying. That's all for now. Stay tuned for the next video in this series where we'll look at Psalm 2. And as always, keep training.